Aloha and welcome to the Woman on Fire podcast. I am Daniela. I am here with Jamie as always. Good and, morning. <laughs> yeah. And we're super stoked to be here with a wonderful woman, Casey. And we will talk with her about what it's like to be a midwife in Utah and what the options are there and how just what options are possible. So welcome, Casey. Hi, I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, well, please do introduce yourself a bit and just who are you? <laughs> All right, um, I'm Casey. I am a traditional midwife based in Southern Utah. Um, I opened my own practice two years ago and have been like slowly working on building um, a community here for traditional birth attendance and like how birth is supposed to look. Um, and so that's pretty much been my focus for about five years now. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. And I know you've been involved with birth work for much longer than that though, right? That's just like the official time that you've dedicated yourself to having your own practice. But yeah. So, yeah. So um, I, my first baby was a C-section and I didn't, I wasn't very informed on things. And when she was two, um, so 12 years ago, uh, I started an apprenticeship with a traditional midwife in my area. She had just moved here from California. And so I um, jumped in with both feet working with her. And I worked with her for three years until I had my next two babies unassisted at home. And then um, took time off to raise them until they were a little bit older. And I went to the Indie Birth Midwifery School and graduated from there last March. So March of 2020. And then, and so that was just for like continuing education and to like remember how I wanted to do this work. Uh, so I have been in birth work for 12 years now. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Thanks for that run through. And yeah, gratitude to uh, Indie Birth because that's how we were brought together. Uh, Casey, you were hosting the Wise Woman's Circle, which is uh, unfortunately not existing currently anymore, but that's what brought us together. You were an amazing moderator of that group uh, with the monthly calls and um, yeah, just so insightful. And, and I remember we were on one of yeah, it was one of those calls and you were sharing something about being an unregistered or unlicensed midwife in your state and still being recognized by the system and invited to the same meetings that the licensed midwives were being invited to and having this process set up for transports and that there wasn't this like, um, like major stigma just because you weren't licensed and it kind of blew my mind because I'm living in a very different world in Hawaii. <laughs> so so yeah, it's really weird. Yeah. I, I talk to a lot of people and they're like, what do you mean that your state like lets you do all of this stuff? Yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's a different world here in Utah. Yeah. And, and we want to learn and just hear you share about what it means to live in that world. Cause I just really want people to know that it, this work, that kind of world is possible. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. So yeah, Utah is a voluntary licensure state. So we specifically have laws written for direct entry midwives and licensed midwives. 
uh, and there's other like layers within that. Like you can be a certified professional midwife, but still not be licensed with the state. Um, or you can just be what I am, um, a traditional direct entry midwife that has never taken the NARM um, and learned through apprenticeship and possibly school. And the state is still like willing to work with us to make sure that people have options. And that's part of what makes Utah unique. Um, we're a very conservative state, which is a struggle sometimes, but like the biggest thing that um, happens here is personal freedoms. Like one of the best things to come from um, conservatism is just everybody has a choice to be able to do things and Utah doesn't ever really want to take that away. Um, in 2012, there was a huge fight. They put through, an, they wanted to put through a new direct entry midwifery bill that would take away a lot of the stuff that we were able to do. But there were so many people throughout the entire state that fought it, that it never even went to vote. And so like, that is a huge help. It's because it was around the same time that the stuff was happening in, happening in Arizona that got rid of their home birth access to VBACs and all of the other things. And so the fact that Utah, we didn't even get past the writing of the bill to anything else was a huge step. Um, in our state. And so here in Utah, a direct entry midwife can pretty much do very similar things to one that's licensed. Uh, the only things that we're not really allowed to do is carry medications and write prescriptions. Like a licensed midwife, unless they're a CNM, they aren't allowed to write prescriptions, but they are allowed to carry medications. But um, we can do everything else um, aside from that. So all of the newborn screens, prenatal screens, um, all of that stuff, the state actually works with us to be able to have access to all of that for our clients that choose to do it. And I actually remember before um, when we talked, Daniela, it was when I was about to meet with the state um, to get training on CCHD and hearing screens. Um, they had actually set up a private um, Zoom meeting for me and another new midwife in my area. Uh, my midwifery partner so that way we could be trained through the state to be able to have access to all of um, those screenings and then they would be able to help us um, help our clients like and so that was one of the big things that I had my like on my list that I had to do this year um, just because the option needed to be there for my clients I didn't want them to have to go to the hospital to get any of the testing just because I didn't, I wasn't able to do it. So the state working with me on that was a huge um, boon to living in Utah. Um, and there are other things that Utah also does. Like we um, we have a coalition called um, UINC, U-W-N-Q-C, hold on, I may have that acronym wrong. Um, it is, you can look it up, but it is a coalition that um, is working to um, make sure that, uh, birth is safe, even though I, I don't like the word safe in Utah, but it's, or options are safe. Um, so their big thing is making sure people have access to prenatal care, um, that it's affordable, but also that those that want an out of hospital birth still have the same resources as those that have, a that are planning a hospital birth, regardless of whether their provider is licensed or not. Um, and one of the big things that they do is uh, trainings and simulations with the hospital staff and out of hospital staff. So that way, and COVID has changed things because we can't do things in person. 
um, but it made it so um, we would run simulations with EMTs and with the hospital staff. So everyone was on the same page on how a transfer would look. Um, we have uh, handouts that are specific for transfer. And so it's just one page um, that we fill out either for the mom or the baby, depending on who is being transferred. And that's all the information that's handed over. Um, and then the midwife is treated like a part of the team. Like we can't like be a part of the team in the hospital, but we're, we're not a visitor, which is a huge like plus, especially during COVID when things were a lot more locked down. Um, and then we have um, not necessarily peer reviews, but we go over how the transfer went after. We have surveys that we fill out saying what we liked about the transfer, what we didn't, um, what the hospital staff could do better, um, and then like how they were treated. So that has been a huge thing for the state of Utah, just because we are one of the leading states in the country for home birth and out of hospital birth. Like the last time I looked, which was a couple of years ago, we were pushing 4% um, out of hospital birth, which is really sad, but it's still really high. Um, most of the country is only 1%. So it's a. Yeah, hey. right. That's what Hawaii is too. So, hey, 4%, that's right. It's higher than the national average. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it goes to show that actually creating more access and creating programs that, that make these, these transitions smoother are, are the quote unquote safe option as opposed to eliminating or eradicating um, that that actually makes things less safe. And um, because then people are having to be underground or having to drop people off at the doorstep or things mm -hmm. like that. So just that recognition that people ha want choices and how can we honor that as opposed to limiting those, right? So making those accesses, that's really great. That's really great. It's a wonderful example. Why do you think that Utah, um, is like that? Do you think it's a demographic thing? Do you think that, um, you know, cause I've had that question in my mind and, um, and questions from other folks too, is it because it is, like you said, conservative or do you think it is, um, some people's speculation is that it's based on religious freedoms or cause there's, um, there's large groups of people that really are trying to protect this. And even in Hawaii, when the first um, legislative sessions were happening about um, licensing midwives, we had nearly a, a few hundred families show up from all islands at the very first hearing and it got shut down immediately. <clears throat> and yet they persisted and over the course of several years ended up sort of making one of the most narrow, other than I know that certain states are just nurse midwives and whatnot, but we have some of the most narrow um, licensure abilities in all the country now um, and have really extremely limited um, access to full spectrum midwifery care. Oh, wow. why yeah. Think, yeah, why do you think that Utah was so successful in that? Um, what do you think the background of that is? Are you from so, Utah? 
I was born here, but uh, my dad joined the Navy when I was a baby. So I didn't move back until college. Um, So that was a whole, (laughs) yeah. Like um, the biggest part is the religious aspect of this. Yes. So the history of um, the Mormon church, the Latter-day Saint church, um, midwifery used to be, so for those that don't know a whole lot about um, the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, um, we have callings. And so you are called to a certain position in the church and they're volunteer. No one is paid for the position that they have in our church. Um, and back when Utah was first, well, before then, um, so like when the church was first founded in the early 1800s, um, and then when Utah was founded, one of the callings was actually midwifery. Um, so Brigham Young, he was the second prophet of the church. He's the one that settled Utah. Um, he did not trust doctors. Uh, so this was 18, 1840s, 1850s. I want to say, um, I may have that number wrong, but he didn't really trust doctors. He trusted, um, women and healers and herbalists and things like that, because the medical system was just barely getting started back then. And he really didn't think that it was a place for a man. And so he actually sent women to medical school in Philadelphia and they would come back and then they would be called to different parts of Utah that was being settled. And those women were the doctors and the midwives and everything else in this area. We, um, for one of my projects with the midwifery school, um, I actually had to do research into it. And we actually have statues um, and like historical parks and stuff that have the midwives um, up there. So you can actually go and learn more about them. One of them, her name is Aunt Pliny and she's about, uh, she lived about 20 minutes from me. And she was the midwife for everyone in this area. Um, And so that is a huge part of this. The fact that midwifery was like a thing that the church perpetuated. um, And that continued until the 1950s. So even after the medical system took over for things, like people were still called as midwives till the 1950s, 1960s, when things shifted and women were supposed to stay home. So that was a whole like different wave of things that had happened. Um, Women shouldn't be working. They need to be staying home and taking care of their children. Um, And so when that shift happened, everyone kind of moved to the hospital, but they still had that medical freedom. This is how um, things work. And then as the natural birth movement grew um, again, like in the eighties and nineties things changed again. So we started having more people interested in birthing at home. Um, and based on that as well, we have big families in Utah. Like it's not unheard of for me to have a client that's having their seventh, eighth, ninth baby. Um, and so once you get to a certain point, you're like, oh yeah, the hospital's cool. But like, why would I leave my house? Like, that's also like a big part of this. Um, and a lot of celebrities, um, uh, like especially like comedians and things like that. They're from Utah and they've been having home births. Jim Gaffigan's wife had home births. And so when he spoke out about it, that made it bigger and he lives in Salt Lake. And so that added to it, but it's also just a lot of people here are very natural minded. We have a lot of homeschoolers. Um, we like uh, our public school and homeschool laws are very different than everywhere else. Like you only have to register them with the school district. You don't have to turn in um, anything saying what your curriculum is. You don't have to do anything. You just have to say, oh yeah, they're going to be at home. And then they don't care. 
Like Utah is just very lax about everything related to that. Um, we have freedoms. Imagine that. Right. (laughs) And like, even with public school, um, you go online and you fill out this little quiz and you get your exemption for vaccines. Like it's easy and it's free. Um, it used, I paid $25 a couple years ago. They just changed it over to being free. I think maybe it was two years ago. Um, but like all of that stuff, it's very like freedom based here in Utah. And so I think like the history of the church and how the state was settled along with like how conservative it is and how much people want freedom definitely plays a big role into how they have their babies. Um, and then on top of that, you've got the, if you have a C-section, you can only have a certain number of kids. And a lot of people here don't listen to that because they have a lot of kids. (laughs) Um, and so that also plays a role in this. That's, that's incredible. And it actually, the history makes a lot of sense in the, when we look at Hawaii and that massive colonization and the overtake. And so of course that kind of plays out into our future as well of um, looking or expecting the outside to make decisions for what's right for the population here. So that, yeah, that history really makes a huge impact. Um, And it's, yeah, that those parallels of, your world there and the world here is um, very remarkable. <laughs> I know, we're here all glossy. I'd like, what? They let you have freedom? Wow. It's absurd that we have, it's like that because we feel like we don't have a lot of that here. But I'm very glad to hear that somewhere in this country of the United States that there is some respect for that. Um, so that's, that's great. And yeah, it seems like midwives and midwifery have just been a part of your history in a way that it was kind of continual um so maybe there's just more of a connection there people didn't get too much of a chance to really forget that they existed and the propagandas against them weren't maybe as prevalent in utah perhaps um but right here in hawaii there's definitely more of a disconnect right the colonizers came in and they outlawed Hawaiian culture basically and so there's a disconnect right forget all that stuff and here's our ways Um, so maybe that's why it's harder to want to make room for midwives again but can you tell us about uh, you shared a little bit the requirements of different types of midwives I just remember you before saying for licensure, you don't necessarily have to be a CPM to qualify for licensure. Is that correct? That is. Yeah. You can become a licensed direct entry midwife in Utah. Which is, do you have to like go the PEP process? Or? No, um, no, no. So Not you just have to go through, yeah, you just have to go through like Utah's licensing, licensing things. So you have to take some specific trainings. Um, you have to be neonatal resuscitation and CPR certified. Um, and you have to take a pharmacology course um, and pay some money. There's like a list of things, but yeah, you don't have to do any of the PEP process or NARM. You do not have to be a CPM to become a licensed midwife in Utah. 
Okay. So you could have just done your apprenticeship with whomever you wanted it to be. It's not necessarily regulated and that Mm -hmm. you have to go train with a particular type of person. Okay. And then you can just go through the licensure steps of the state. Yep. That's it. Yeah. And quite a few midwives actually do that. Um, like that we have more of those than we do CPMs. Um, even with the Midwives College of Utah, like being one of the biggest midwifery schools, um, we still have more people that go the direct entry route and then decide to become licensed because of the benefits that you can get from being licensed, like carrying medication. Mm-hmm. Um, like not just not just like Pitocin and Cytotec and Methogen, but Rogam and vitamin K. Like a lot of people choose to be licensed so they can carry those, even though licensure comes with other restrictions. Mm-hmm. Right. What are those restrictions and scope of practice for the licensed midwives? Yeah. So those, and it is different if you're a CPM as well, because uh, NARM, uh, not NARM, um, <laughs> MANA has their own like standards of practice. Um, but specifically in Utah, um, you can't help multiples. So nobody that's having twins or triplets, unless you don't know about it, but that's rare. Um, you can't help someone that's had more than two C-sections um, without, at, even if they've had a vaginal birth before their two C-sections, you can't have, help them have their baby at home. Um, if this was a wait. weird one and this oh, is- Oh, wait, like, hold on. What yeah, if they've ahead. had a vaginal birth after their two sections, maybe whatever in the hospital? Nope. So no, no don't care. Yeah. No. Yeah. If they've had two (laughs) C-sections, then it's a no. Like, got it. And so it's a whole other, yeah. Um, like if they've had one C-section, then it's not a big deal. And some people like they interpret the law a little bit differently and they're like, oh, if they've had two, it's okay. But if they've had three, then it's a no. Um, so it really just depends on how the midwife views the law. Um, and no one really cares either way too. (laughs) Um, and then like, you can't help people like you can help diabetics, which is kind of, which is really cool. Like even if they're type one diabetic, they can have a home birth, but if they've have a history of miscarriage and they're bleeding after 20 weeks of pregnancy, you can't help them. Even if it's like not a re- like a pregnancy thing, they still can't. It's like the weird laws inside this is strange. Um, if you can't help someone have a baby if they are in labor earlier than 37 weeks or after 42. So at 42 weeks, exactly. They're transferred to an OB um, at a hospital. And so they be transferred to an unlicensed midwife or do they have to transfer? Okay. (laughs) Technically. So the law says that they have to be referred for transfer to someone that works in the hospital system. But I've also had people that have transferred to me because of that, because I can help them. So it really just depends on the person that they're working with. And a lot of times the midwives in Utah will do like natural induction stuff in quotes, natural induction things so that someone has their baby before 42. But a lot of times they just cancel care if they still wanna have a home birth and the midwife isn't comfortable with it. Um, Another one is breach. They can't do breach at home, period, unless like the baby is actively coming out of the vagina, um, then they have to transfer if they find out a baby is breach. Um, 
And so there's not a whole lot of training. And in Utah, only one hospital in the entire state does breach vaginal birth anyway. Everywhere else is an automatic C-section. And so there's not a whole lot of vaginal be- breach training in the state to begin with. Um, right. And so them transferring the to them. Here, I think there's only one doctor at the army hospital and then there's one or two doctors at the um the main hospital on oahu and it's very much like up to their discretion of whether they would want to take on a client or not with a breech baby Mm -hmm. yeah we have one doctor in the whole state and he's older and every time every year we're all terrified that he's going to retire and he's got a lot of restrictions like he doesn't really take first babies if they're breech. Um, he'll do, if you've already had a vaginal birth, then he's more leaning on stuff, but it is very like restricted based on him. And that, you know, boundaries, good job. But um, like- Yeah, you don't want somebody taking it on if they don't feel comfortable. Absolutely. You don't want those <laughs> nervous hands receiving your baby. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Because everyone can feel that in the room, so- Yes, yeah. 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 Um, and there are like other weird restrictions, but those are like the really big ones. Oh, um, if they, if their water's been broken for a certain amount of time, they have to transfer. Um, I think it's 24 hours, but I could be wrong about that one. Um, that one's one of the more like lesser rules down in the, like, it's, it's a pretty big law, um, with what they are allowed to do and what they aren't. Okay. Yep pretty typical across the board for Mm -hmm. licensure yeah well what I find rather amazing about it all is that it's not an all or nothing like here you are okay not choosing to license but that doesn't mean that you're completely not acknowledged or have no access at all to anything within the system it's like no you do and (laughs) you're allowed to interface with them and they recognize you it's like all right she's also a midwife she's one of these types of midwives because there's different types of midwives and that's the beauty of the light recognizes different types of midwives Mm -hmm. uh which out here a sticking point in pushing for licensure has often been like well the people are confused and they don't know you know they they don't know how to differentiate between too many different types of midwives um so we need to just standardize it so that when people hear the word midwife it just means one thing and everyone just knows what that means and and i'm just like where did they get that info from where where would how, like how did the assumption come about that people cannot differentiate between different types of midwives <laughs> yeah. because oh, absolutely. They, they have been already actually um because there are different types of midwives and people have been doing their own work despite the government not being involved um yeah people will differentiate between different types of doctors and people are smarter than the government things <laughs> so that's no, it's great yeah it's a yeah. great example and we are- and in Utah, we actually have a private organization. Um, it's a nonprofit. It's the Utah Midwives Organization. And all midwives in Utah, whether they practice at home or hospital or birth center, um, they're all, we pay dues um, and we get access to all of the things that this organization does. Um, and it doesn't matter like if you're licensed or not, they are very big on keeping the laws exactly the way they are written right now and not changing it. We actually have a position on the board that is just for monitoring every new law that comes in every 
session to see how it would affect any part of our practice. So this um, last year, there was 14 laws that um, we were all keeping an eye on just to make sure things weren't changing um, because we had this one person that was in there that that was her job was to go through everything and to make sure the wording didn't change any part of how anything is going, even if it had nothing to do with midwifery, if it was anything related to healthcare. And so like having that is a huge boon for the state. Um, plus we have regular meetups, we have online peer reviews right now. Um, we have people that are in charge of different parts of the state to make sure that the midwives in that area are getting the support that they need and the training that they need. Um, I live in Southern Utah, and so we have a lot less access to things than people in Northern Utah. So those in Utah County, in Salt Lake, in Provo, um, there are way more midwives, there's way more training, um, a lot more hospitals, like all of this. And so the last two years, we've been working to get trainings where I am. Um, I'm about three and a half, four hours south of Salt Lake City. Um, and so we've been working to get stuff down and then COVID hit. And so it's been like, we had to put a lot of things on hold before we can get back to getting stuff here. But working with the entire state, it's a big part of what we all do. And I remember I went to a training um, to be trained on how to do an official peer review with the UMO. And there was a midwife um, there that she's licensed and certified all of the things she moved to Utah after living on the East coast for a long time. And she's like, you know, I think the coolest part about living in Utah is yeah, I may not be comfortable with a breech birth, but I do know another midwife that is because we have access to different kinds of midwives and everybody has the midwife that fits with them anyway. And so like with how Hawaii is like, we can just label everyone as one type of midwife. That's not how that works because the way I practice is very, very different from the way that another midwife in my town practices. And that's why um, we also like really tell people that you need to interview numerous people um, just so you can find the perfect fit. And then also going with um, true informed choice, like this is what I can do, this is what I can offer, this is what I can't offer, is that something that you're okay with? Um, and so people find the midwife that works with them for them, whether they have letters after their name or not. Yeah, that's beautiful, really, that the state um, is willing to embrace the diversity as a plus, whereas here it's somehow, you know, they're more interested in mainstreaming and standardizing, right? Because if we standardize that, um is sold as the illusion is of safety right we all know mm -hmm. everyone's on the same page same 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 um so yeah the diversity here is often looked at as a as a negative by some people not me of course <laughs> um but yeah again it, it, i'm just having a great time hearing of this example in utah where things are just seen different with a different perspective <laughs> it's very refreshing yeah. yeah it's a very different state like I talk to a oh, lot of yeah. people all the time and hearing how their states function and stuff like I'm always like really that's how they do it there just because <laughs> it's not a big deal to me like I yeah. I file birth certificates for my clients I work with the state with all of that I do newborn screens and CCHD screens and they're working on getting me my own hearing equipment for newborns like it's very different than how other people um, have the state accept them. Yeah, it would be great for 
that model in Utah to kind of catch on as a trend? Because you know how they they're like, well, what if we're just doing what other states are doing, right? It's like we just got to get Hawaii up to speed, and we just got to get it on board so it can be the same because everyone else is doing. It. It's like, well, why don't we? <laughs> why are we looking at the models of like California or something? It's like, why not Utah? I would love that. I yes, could get, I could get on board with that trend. <laughs> yeah. Like, and we even have birth centers that are unregulated. Um, oh, you do wow. not like most of the people that own birth centers are licensed midwives and CPMs, but that is not a rule. Like, um, there's no law saying that ha- that has to be a thing. You can be an unlicensed, unregulated midwife and have a birth center. Um, like we don't bill insurance, but that's mostly just because it's a pain in the butt. Um, and not worth it. So, but like, we also can bill insurance. So it, it depends on what your insurance is. Um, we have one main hospital group in Utah. They've got a monopoly on 99% of the hospitals in the state. And they only really like using one type of insurance and they hate anything that's not in the hospital. So with them, it's hard, but other things like um, Blue Cross Blue Shield, uh, there are quite a few midwives that um, bill through them and Medicaid as well. Like it's hard getting paid, but Medicaid, the state Medicaid will even pay for an out of hospital birth if you're a certain type of midwife. That being a licensed midwife? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, the main ones are certified nurse midwives. They pay out easier for them than they do mm. um, just certified professional midwives. Okay. All right. Yeah, we ran into that with our main um, insurance here is that they um, kind of came forward and said, well, unless you have a graduate degree, like a certified nurse midwife, we're not really interested in covering um, birth services for out of hospital births. So Mm -hmm. that was an interesting thing that came up during the legislative sessions here. And I'm not sure that that is still happening, but I also know that in places like Oregon, where my friend had a certified professional midwife, um, the only way they could bill insurance is if they had a nurse midwife on staff. And so the nurse midwife would come to the birth just to fill out paperwork. And that was it. She didn't even attend the births. She would come and she would show up to fill out paperwork to say she was there so they could bill insurance. So she wasn't even really attending births. She was just a staff person that could send, that could say I was there and send the paperwork in. So find people finding loopholes in order for insurance to, to unfold um, there was Mm -hmm. really interesting ways for things to, to happen. (laughs) So, um, but of course they were willing to go those lengths in order to but it actually ended up being detrimental to their practice because they had another person on staff and then of course medicaid and places where people would usually pay out of pocket once they got insurance involved insurance of course pays tremendously less um, especially state insurance that it made it so it was actually they had to hire another person pay another person but then we're getting paid less to do the births. Um, mm-hmm. and so it ended up becoming very complicated for them, but midwives do always try to figure out a way to serve their people the best they can. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. And the midwives in my area that take insurance, they do a lot of stuff where 
things that are extra, the person pays on their own. So like any lab work, any ultrasounds, any medications that they need, they have to pay on top of the other fee to the midwife. And so it's, it's almost all a cart. Like you pay a flat fee for your midwife, but um, then you like, you have to buy your Rogam yourself. You have to buy all of these other things on your own outside of all of that. So they don't have to worry about it. Huh. Yeah. You would think that's exactly what would be covered by insurance would be lab work and ultrasound. That seems like they're kind of stuff. <laughs> You'd think, right? <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, well, I'm curious. Um, I'm going to like take you back to something you mentioned earlier, just about mm-hmm. the hospital and you guys have a transport form and I'm just curious if you've had any experience in actually having to fill that out and presenting it to them amidst the transport. Cause anytime I think about that concept, I'm like, that seems really hard to pull off if, if you're actually trying to rush somewhere, which we know a transport isn't always a super rushing situation um, or just in general, your experience in interfacing with the hospital. Yeah. Um, so I, I personally have never transferred one of my own clients, um, especially in like how like things work now. Um, I only found out about uh, Uink, um, oh my gosh, a year and a half ago. So, <laughs> um, um, and so the uh, president of the UMO actually came down to meet all of the midwives in our area and she told me about it. Um, I'm gonna add the link in the chat and then you guys can have all of that. Um, but um, I've never actually used the forms. I do carry them um, just in case. And, but I have been a part of a transfer. Um, I was the photographer for that birth rather than the primary midwife. Um, but the midwife did leave um, after the mom was all settled in. And me and her doula ended up staying until she had her baby about 14 hours later. We were with her for 46 hours total. Um, and so like seeing how the transfer went down, um, like the midwife called ahead of time. So that happens all the time here. The midwife will call the hospital and tell them exactly what's going on, who they need to have on staff, who needs to be there, um, how long it will take us to get there, whether we're coming by an ambulance or not. Um, Most of the time it's faster to not take an ambulance. Uh, We live in fairly rural areas. Um, Like, so it can be even longer to get an ambulance than just for one of us to drive. Um, but when you get to the hospital, they most of the time will have all the people that you need to, that will already be there. Um, and then they will ask the midwife, the questions rather than the person that's laboring, like all of their history and everything. So that person, like the person that's having a contraction is not the one that, um, is being asked all of these like questions about, oh, well, do you know what your gestational diabetes score was? Um, and so like all of these other things, but we would have all of that in the file. Um, and like the forms are fairly easy to fill out. Um, like it's mostly their history and things like that. And it can be done um, after we get there as well. And so depending on the nature of the trans- uh, the transfer, most transfers are not emergent. like immediately get in, get the baby out, immediate kind of thing. And so we, a lot of times we have time. Um, I do know a midwife that um, just fills out the stuff before birth, like all the things that they can know, like um, all of their, the parent or 
uh, their address and information and things like that. That way it's ready to go in case of a transfer and then they don't have to worry about it. But um, I'm superstitious and I don't do that. <laughs> uh, and so <laughs> having that available, um, but it is a fair, it's not a super intense form. Um, and most of the time we give all that information over the phone. And then as soon as we get to the hospital, but the hospital, and it does depend on the hospital that you go to. Um, the one that I have transferred to in both the transfers that I've been a part of um, is a hospital an hour away from me that is infinitely better than the hospital in my town. Um, they are a bigger hospital. They see triple the amount of birthing people that mine does. Um, they have a bigger staff. Like it's a much, and they have an, a level three NICU. Um, and so it's a bigger deal um, going to that hospital. They're more used to it. Whereas with mine, um, we see maybe 900 babies a year in my hospital. It's really small. Um, we've got five providers total. One of them is a CNM, the other four are OBs. Um, like it's a lot smaller and it's, it's more intimate, but it's also rarer to have a transfer to there. So they still struggle on how to handle it. And there is a lot of backlash. Um, it's better than it was 14, 15 years ago. Um, but it is also worse in some ways. Um, we had a, um, fairly public, uh, midwifery trial here in 2016 and 2017. And so we're still trying to bounce back from all of the things that happened then. But for the most part, you call the hospital, you let them know what's happening. They have the people on staff and they're ready to go. And then you can stay or go depending on how the midwife and the client and everything is going. Um, but they are very open to what a transfer is. If that answered the question, <laughs> I'm gonna ramble a little bit. Yeah, no, great. I love rambles. That's, that's it. I asked about one thing, but I'm really like hoping that you'll get into so many other things. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's totally it. Right. Cause that's what people kind of get concerned about, right. Is the intersection point, right. Of when these different types of providers mm -hmm. end up having to just intersect what happens there. So, okay. Um, I particularly, yeah. and love I've actually, I've, Oh, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Well, just, I was just going to remark that I also love what you mentioned earlier, that there's a system in place for reviews after the transports as well. Um, and that's on both ends, right? It's like mm -hmm. the hospital has to review as well. Do the midwives get feedback from the to. hospital? Right. So it goes uh, both ways. Yeah, we're supposed to, but it doesn't happen very often. Oh, sure. <laughs> we okay. do most of the review ourselves. And then we submit the forms to the state um, saying, hey, this is how our transfer went down. This is what we saw. This is what we think can be improved. Um, mm -hmm. This is how they treated my client. Because um, even in our trainings and everything else, like one of the big parts that um, UINC has is, was the person treated like a person? Um, was their wants and wishes respected? Like we understand that like a lot of people have a lot of issues with a home birth transfer um, thinking, oh, you're only giving us the people that are struggling when you're like, yeah, that's kind of the point. Like <laughs> you are the one that we go to when things are not working at home and that's how the system is supposed to work. Um, and in the transfers that I've been a part of, we've had more issue with the nurses than the doctors. Um, and so like 
overcoming that has been harder than how the OBs see everything. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. Sometimes it, it just feels like a luck of the draw of who's going to be on available and working that day. Um, mm -hmm. and it'd be great to settle that a little bit. So it doesn't feel so up in the air. It's like, no, we're all just supposed to be on the same page and just work together. Uh, just wishful thinking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's awesome. Casey, is there anything else you really wanted to share about what it's like to be able to, you know, live within the system of Utah and midwife in that way? Any wisdom you have for other states and the world at large navigating midwifery regulations? I think like the only big thing that always comes through my head is choice. Like people need to know that they have a choice and a lot of states don't give people that. Like I, um, I'm part of a lot of birth groups. Um, I have, as a VBAC mom, um, like that's where I like really, re those are my favorite clients. Um, and I take a lot of VBAC people that other midwives won't, um, just because I'm less scared of it. Um, having been through like both sides of that myself. Um, and I see a lot of people in a lot of VBAC groups that don't have options. And that is like one of the first things that gets taken away with licensure is VBAC at home. And it breaks my heart just because a scarred uterus should not mean that someone doesn't have options. Um, and so like the idea that we're regulating midwifery to make it safer while we're actually making it less safe is heartbreaking. Um, and Utah has, we still have like some things that I wish were different. Um, honestly, the only reason I would ever choose to be licensed is to carry Rogam. Um, I would love to be able to offer that to my clients, but I would never like follow the rules of licensure. So why would I do it? Um, but as a whole, I really like how Utah how Utah has things set up just so people do have that choice. They do have the ability to pick the midwife that works for them. Um, whether that's this pregnancy or next pregnancy, um, or ever like, but we do have like a really great group of midwives in our state that are making sure that all of that is continued for the next generation of people. And I really wish that every state had the support that Utah gives to its midwives. Yeah, I have to say that one of the things that we really discovered in the legislative process over these many years is that when the midwives really started gathering and meeting together and understanding how each other's practices worked, that that was a great benefit and a great gift to the community um, as well as each other. Because as you said, that midwife that came from the East Coast that said, well, maybe I'm not comfortable with this, but like, but that is something that you're comfortable with and that really trying to find those ways to, to support the families and, and the, the woman's desires, um, I think is sort of a universal, for the most part of, of most midwifery practices is that we really do wanna just try to get that specific woman, the care that she, she um, is looking for. And it also really demystified how other midwives practiced and, and how 
by and large, they were quite open to that. The midwives were quite open to that. It was just sort of this legislative body and uh, that, that wasn't. And even, of course, ACOG, who doesn't support home birth at all, um, that they were sort of the ones that kind of forced this down the pipe, it seems like. Um, for Hawaii. And even now that we have these licensure laws, I was just told yesterday that one of the um, OBs that kind of openly supports home birth still doesn't actually support CPMs, <laughs> um, even though they are now licensed. So that was a really interesting, and it just sort of that disconnect of not coming to the forefront and taking the time to really understand. Um, and that was a beautiful thing that I saw that came together through the legislative process was that all these different midwives did sit in the round table and did try to say like, well, what do you need? And what do you do? And why do you practice the way that you do? And what are your clients looking for? Because they're not looking for me, they're looking for you. And then that also gave that opportunity that when we interviewed with people, we could say, you know, I really feel like you should contact this midwife. I feel like she would be dancing to the same beat as what you're looking for. And that was a really wonderful and amazing um, opportunity. And maybe one of the, the few benefits <laughs> for the community at large that came from that, um, this whole process was really providing that round table to understand what we all had to offer and why people sought out these different modalities. It was really quite lovely. Um, and it still happens. We still meet, even though we're slightly, uh, you know, divided through a political sense um, that we, you know, we have this exemption. And so we still are able to sort of funnel people to the folks that feel true, um, at least for the next couple of years until we figure out all the details of how we're going to work through our laws that we have already crafted. So <laughs> um, it's really great to hear that you have different coalitions and people who are really on board as well. And that's something that we're trying to work on here in Hawaii too. And um, we are looking to Utah as an example, uh, because your state is one of the few that recognizes that choice actually equals safety. So I love how you put that choice equals safety. Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Casey, for highlighting that, that that's really what it all boils down to here is it's choice. It's not about what you prefer for you or not. It's just everyone being able to live their own preferences. And I've often heard people say that, well, you know, it, it's a, it's a trade-off. We've got to trade in um, the ability of feedbacks and twins and breaches from being able to access midwifery care at home in order for other people to access midwifery care at home, right? This as an argument for licensure. And it breaks my heart. It's like, how how do you actually believe that? Like, go ask those breach moms and twin moms and feedbacks mom. Like, really, you think 
they're all going to agree with you. Not all of these moms want a birth at home, but for the ones that do want that option, you've just taken that away from them. Like you chose that for them. Um, and I know that there's many that, that do want that access. So that's how I, I can't agree at all that that's an okay compromise to make on behalf of other people. And also, um, yeah, just choice is often, I don't know, people get kind of jazzed out, ooh, licensure, and we can bill insurance, and we can be accepted by the system, and we'll be integrated, and, and I mean, I was even fooled by that when I first entered this conversation and had never attended a birth and knew nothing about any of these nuances. I thought it, the bill was a good idea. I was like, oh, cool, right? Midwives get recognized, right? Isn't that a great thing? I totally fell for it. Um, and it took me a while to unravel. I was like, oh, it's a little deceitful. <laughs> um, they're actually taking away women's rights. And, and that's the part that you got to lift the veil in order to see. And it gets overlooked a lot. Um, it can get really tricky and confusing for folks. So choice, autonomy, freedom, that's what it's about. So thank you for highlighting that for folks. And yeah, I'm so stoked that you get to live that and folks get to embrace that in the land of Utah. <laughs> Sounds like a mystical place. <laughs> Pretty great. Like, there are a lot of things I would change, but I love it. Mm -hmm. Right on. Things can be great and still have room for improvement. So I think that that's, yeah, I think that that's okay to recognize those things um, as well. So yeah. And, and we're so grateful for your time today and your energy and your effort that you put forth of, of serving families in their autonomy. And is there a way that, or are you interested in sharing how people can be in touch with you or if they have questions or if they're looking for an autonomous midwife who will honor their desires and their wishes, do you mind sharing how people can be in touch with you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm Casey Pearson. My business is Moon Tree Midwifery. Uh, you can just look that up, moontreemidwifery.com, uh, moontreemidwifery at gmail.com. Um, those are the main ways to get in contact with me. Um, and I do travel. Um, in December last year, I went to Arkansas for a friend's birth, which was kind of awesome. And I'm like, I should do this more often. Um, and so like, and I've also talked to people that don't have access to breach where they live, um, breach vaginal delivery. And, um, like that has, um, been something that I've been working on providing to more people, uh, along with VBAC as well. So if anyone has questions or anything, they can reach out to me. Um, and then like Daniela was talking about earlier, we don't have the wise woman circle with indie birth anymore. Um, but I am trying to create my, create my own version of the wise woman circle on mighty networks. Um, it's called the moon tree birth nerds and I can get, um, Daniela the link so that if anyone wants to join, um, please do. We do twice, uh, monthly calls. Um, we do peer reviews or case reviews, um, study groups, uh, like book clubs, things like that, along with weekly discussions and things like that. And it is like just starting. It's only about a month and a half old, but I would really like to get um, that off the ground just so people have a place to find more information on birth, um, whether they're a birth worker or not. Um, like it is more geared towards people that are 
interested in doing birth work or are doing birth work, but it could be for anyone that's just interested in stuff. So um, if anyone wants to join that as well, but they can also just reach out to me. Um, I'm available any time <laughs> uh, for any questions that they have. And um, thank you guys for having me on here. It was an awesome discussion. Yeah, please do send all those links and I'll make sure to include them in the episode notes along with your contact and all of that. It'll be there for people to access. And yes, this was a wonderful way to start my morning. I loved hearing from you, Casey. Thank you for sharing all of that. It's great. You're welcome. Yeah, wonderful. Okay, well, listeners, thanks for being here with us again today. And yeah, if you got any questions, you can reach out to us too. We are Women on Fire Podcast at gmail.com um, or reach out to Casey as well. All right, have a beautiful day. Aloha. Mm-hmm. <laughs>